This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. We've got a great program for you, but before we get into it, I just wanted to remind everybody that Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So go to flux.community for more podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and society, and how they all intersect. And if you want to get previous episodes of this program, just go to theoryofchange.show and you can get full access to the video, audio, and transcripts of all the episodes. And my thanks, especially to those who are paid subscribers. Uh, you can do that on Substack or on Patreon. Thank you very much for your support. All right. So with that little plug out of the way, let's get into today's program. It's election season again, which means that public opinion surveys are constantly in the news. Trying to figure out what likely voters want is on the minds of everyone who works in politics or journalists. What about the unlikely voters? Now, at first glance, it may seem a bit absurd to ask about the political views of people who aren't registered to vote or who are registered but rarely do turn out to the polls. But the reality of American politics as it stands right now is that elections are often decided by such small margins that mobilizing non-voters could be and likely has been crucial to winning elections. And when it comes to figuring out what unlikely voters think, there is no one more expert on the subject than David Paleologos. He's the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, which is known for its public opinion surveys. And it is also known for a poll that they do every few years of unlikely voters. So thanks for being here today, David. Welcome to Theory of Change. Thank you. Great to be in flux. All right. Excellent. Well, all right. So let's, before we get too deep into the subject here, let's define what is an unlikely voter as you have done it in these surveys here. So an unlikely voter really falls into two categories. One, people who are not registered to vote. Obviously, they're not likely to vote if they're not registered to vote. And two, people who are registered to vote, but who indicate on surveys that they're not likely to cast a ballot. So normally pollsters will begin a survey and they'll say, how likely are you to vote in the upcoming election? Very likely, somewhat, not very, not at all. If respondents indicate not at all or not likely, they get screened out. And in this survey, we did the exact opposite. If they said they were very or somewhat likely, we screened them out. And we proceeded with people who said that they were not likely or not at all likely to vote. And how reliable are those indicators when people claim that they're not likely to vote? Tell us about the research about that particular self-identification. So some people actually say it so that they will be disqualified from the survey and that they can hang up in a civil way. Some people genuinely are not likely to vote. And when we probe a little bit further in the survey, we get an idea about whether or not they, they've voted in the past or whether or not they have a Democrat or Republican-leaning preference. But when you look at the data that's out there from the U.S. Um, elections Project, they do calculations based on voter-eligible population for every state and nationally. And what we found is that it's not just a few million people that don't vote. It's a lot of people. We're expecting 90 million people who are eligible to vote in the United States in 2024 will not vote, either because they're not registered to vote or they're simply fed up and they won't vote. And mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, an ominous number when you think about it, 90 million people. Yeah, what's the percentage? It's, 
Well, it's more votes than were cast for Joe Biden, and Joe Biden set the record for most votes received by any presidential candidate in 2020. He was in the 80 million plus range, and 90 million people exceeds that. 90 million people are saying they're not going to vote, even though they're eligible to vote. And that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pollsters do these niche surveys, Democratic voters only, Republican voters only, caucus voters only. And these are very small subsets compared to the 90 million people who are Americans, they're citizens, and they, they're just not going to vote. They're fed up. And so we thought back in 2012, why not poll them and figure out what's going on and, and then track it? And we followed up with a survey in 2018 and now here in 2023. And there are some common threads in the data, but also some red flags and also some opportunities for candidates in terms of trying to convert those non-voters into likely voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and again, we're talking about such a large pool of people here that there's no question that not even 20% of them could could easily make the difference for any presidential candidate and certainly for a lot of congressional or gubernatorial or whatever. Yeah, on the ballot, I think there's no question about that. And there has been some research that indicates that Donald Trump was able to do that to some degree in 2016, and that that was a big thing he was interested in doing in 2020 as well, trying to identify non-voters, disengaged people who uh, were sympathetic to him. So it's, yeah, like this is something that's already happening, and you guys kind of were ahead of the curve in that regard, I think. So, yeah, I, I think so. And I, I'm surprised that people didn't copy. Usually people copy some of the work, pulses, scoop questions and poach questions and different things from each other. It really hasn't been done. I think I understand why it hasn't been done, because it's really expensive. I mean, we do live caller surveys and you can get in and out of a live caller survey in three nights, three days, four days max. Getting non-voters is tougher because these are people who aren't used to being polled. They're tougher to reach. They're disproportionate minority. They're disproportionate young, lower educated. They're also disproportionate disabled. There's a much higher population of disabled people who have just given up on politics. They're just trying to survive because of their own issue or disability or family disability. So they're a tougher population to reach. But we think it is essential. And I I do think that it helped Donald Trump in uh, 2016. It also helped Barack Obama in 2012. If you remember, back Mm -hmm. in 2012, we did the survey, I think, in August, which is kind of the low point of Barack Obama's numbers. He was really suffering a lag effect after the big 2008 win, hope and change. And then a lot of people hadn't really soured on him, but they didn't have the same intensity. And he figured out that if it was just a persuasion campaign, he was probably going to have a real challenge. And so I think he the the DNC, from what I understand, just like Trump did in 2016, used the data to go out and find non-persuadables, people they didn't even have to persuade to vote for Barack Obama. They felt that if they could get them just out to vote, that a high percentage of them would vote for Barack Obama. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And in the 2012 poll that you guys did, Obama was the, I mean, he wasn't the majority candidate, but he was 
definitely the preferred candidate of these unlikely voters in the survey that you conducted at that point. Now, you guys found a kind of a partisan reversal, if you will, that Donald Trump got more support than Joe right. Biden did. 2023. Um, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And the exact opposite dynamic, if you look at people who weren't registered to vote, it's about a two to one break for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. If you looked at people who were registered but not likely to vote, it was a two and a half to one spread of Donald mm -hmm. Trump over Joe Biden. And so what that suggests is the same advantage that Barack Obama had in 2012, technically, statistically, Donald Trump has as an advantage. Mm -hmm. He needs to find those people. And having polled it three times, it's tough to find the people. But if you do find the people, again, he would not have to persuade as much. Now, there were some other kind of interesting little splits when you looked at the numbers. So like women who were registered to vote in this sample, 32% of them said that they were in favor of Donald Trump, but only 11% said that they were in favor of Biden. But it was split evenly basically among men who were registered. But then by contrast, among unregistered men, they were much more likely to go to Trump, whereas that dichotomy didn't exist so much for women who were unregistered. So these are small sample sizes, though, so I don't know how much we can delve into it. But on the other hand, the disparity between these two different groups is certainly higher than the margin of error, even for the smaller subsets. What's your take on all that? Is there anything to be gained from looking at these numbers? That's exactly the case. I mean, with smaller subsets, you're absolutely right, and your viewers should know that they take on a higher margin of error because they are smaller sample sizes. So once you get to a subsample of 70, 80, 100 people, it's significantly higher margin of error than it is a subsample of 400 or 500. 400 or 500 subsample, you're in the plus or minus 4% range or thereabouts, 4, 4, 4.5% range. But then when you get down to 100 subsample, you're plus or minus like 9%. So, yeah, I mean, you want to be careful looking at some of the subsets, but the common thread, male or female, registered or unregistered, is a disappointment with both choices. I mean, to be fair, the polls generally show that a third-party candidate is the top choice, not Trump, not Biden. And in 2012, it was really all about a third-party candidate, and you've seen that not only in this poll, but in other polling data where people just don't want it to be a Trump-Biden matchup again, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or independent, voter or non-voter, and you're seeing the same kind of dynamic here. Most people were opting for something else, a better choice than, than those. But if they had to choose between Biden or Trump, Trump was getting the plurality of support over Biden. And that speaks to a number of issues that are important to men and women registered or not registered, be it the economy, immigration, parenting. You mentioned some of the female respondents for Trump. Uh, that's a big issue for a lot of people, independents as well, independent women. So a lot of these dynamics are in play here in 2023, as they were in the two previous surveys. Yeah. Now with the sample, I mean, you had mentioned that it did take a lot longer to be in the field as the term goes in polling. How confident are you that this, I mean, because statistically speaking, there is, there is the concept of margin of error, but it's possible that the sample could be not quite 
accurate. I mean, like people have raised concerns about that with election polling, that the percentage of people who answer the phone might be more inclined to have certain opinions or whatnot. Uh, and that's why the Pew Research Center and some others, uh, and we, maybe you can talk about your own organization in that regard, is, has tried to make some adjustments to try to find people who might not be wanting to answer the phone or take a, a, a phone poll. I mean, let's maybe talk about methodology here if, you, if we could. A little yeah, bit. sure. So for us, we wanted to go state by state and look at how many eligible voters didn't vote in the last two presidential elections. So we have real data on that. It's not subjective. We have data on how many voter-eligible adults in each state did not vote. And what we did was we grouped those state-by-state into regions and made sure that those quotas reflected what the quotas were actually for the last two presidential elections. So in some states, obviously, California has a lot of people who are transient, who are not registered. Some of them are just inhabitants. They're not legal citizens. Therefore, they're not eligible. But we were only looking at people who were eligible to vote state by state that did not show historically a high probability of voting. And you're right, it is tough to find those people because people who are voters, people who take surveys, especially the super voters, the good voters, they're used to taking surveys, they're familiar with the question formats. People who aren't voters or who aren't registered, it's really difficult, especially if you have a 15, 20-minute study to keep them on the line and to ask why they're not voting in many different ways, or what would motivate them to vote. And it's very difficult to get all the way through to the end with respondents like that. So it does take a lot of time. It really is expensive when you're doing live calling. But one thing you asked about confidence, the one thing for sure is that we feel quite confident that the people that we reported in the survey were not voting said to us that they were not voting either because they weren't registered or that they were not voting because they were done with the political system as it were. Some people could be motivated to vote, and that's kind of what we talked about earlier, and the onus is on the campaigns to find those people who might be on the fence, who might be telling us in a survey, yes, I'm registered, but no, I'm not voting next year those people might be persuadable to vote. But at this point, polls being a snapshot in time, at the time that we did the field, they were not voting next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's get further in into the tables here. And uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for people who want to check out the complete results. Um, so... This is a population overall that seems to not know as much about politics as regular voters. You have a question in here about who is the vice president, and 70% of the respondents correctly gave the name Kamala Harris or some semblance of her (laughs) identifying her, who she was. And that was probably, uh, that was higher than when, when you asked this 
poll in 2018, uh, it was around 50% said Mike Pence. Now they also, they also, there were, there were some interesting breakdowns I thought with their, with their ideologies. When you go through and you ask them to sort of place themselves on the ideological spectrum, 32% said they were moderate, 18% said liberal and 16% said conservative. How do those match up with the voter samples you guys conduct? Yeah, so it's more of a perfect bell curve, right, in terms of uh, sentiment, with moderate being in the middle. And you would guess that, right? You would guess that about people who don't have a leaning, don't have an interest in voting. They probably self-define as being moderate. It's a, It actually runs a little bit left of center for most polls. Most polls skew slightly conservative most national polls skew slightly conservative where there will be a big chunk of moderate, but slightly higher amount of people say conservative or very conservative than they do liberal or very liberal. So this poll is slightly left of that. And that kind of makes sense when you think about people who don't vote, who tend to be younger, persons of color, lower income, and even a disproportionate amount of disabled Americans who have given up on the political system as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, but at the same time, you also did ask if you did vote in 2020, who did you vote for in it? And there was a slight plurality of the respondents said that they had voted for Donald Trump. Do you see a dichotomy there between people who are identifying themselves as left-leaning, but are more likely to be supporting Donald Trump? Like, what's what's the deal with that? Yeah, so I think there are two separate questions, and it's a great question. And number one, and I, this was really one of the takeaways for me, is that Trump's narrative that the system is rigged, it's not fair, government doesn't work, government is frozen, has actually turned off some of his own base which explains why slightly more people had said, not a lot, but slightly more people had said that they had previously voted for him. And that's worked counter to his narrative. He's used it to motivate people to vote, to say, you need to get out and vote for me because the system is rigged, because Washington, D.C. doesn't work, because your vote is being thrown away by these corrupt Democrats or whatever's his narrative is, but it's had the opposite effect according to this data. This data is suggesting that those people have actually listened to him and they aren't voting because they don't think that he'll be allowed to be elected or that the system is rigged and that their vote really doesn't matter and that they're very disillusioned about the system and they have been convinced by Donald Trump and others that it's just a waste of time voting. And so people who may have previously supported him thinking the system was going to work when he got elected now believe there's no point. Yeah. Um, Yeah. At the same time, I think you could also say that it is showing that Biden's message that there may be some similarities that he's facing with that Hillary Clinton faced in 2016 in that the message of Things are fine. Don't worry about it. The Democrats have got it under control. That's not persuasive to a lot of people. They feel like whether it's their own lives or however they're coming to this opinion, 
they feel like that the system has failed and they're not interested in somebody telling them everything's fine. Don't worry about it. They, they do believe that. And the reason really Biden prevailed was he was viewed as a, a calm, steady hand to lead the country from the, the omnipotent tweets of Donald Trump, someone who was clean politically and and someone who could reach across the aisle. Now, with this issue that we're dealing with, where we have a divided Congress and we can't get consensus on a lot, even though there was one one bipartisan bill that obviously that President Biden is talking about, those are all in question now. Forget about his age and competency. That's been an overriding issue. It's worse now. But if he is seen to not be squeaky clean honest, but by virtue of either the Hunter Biden issue or these allegations against Hunter Biden and whether there's a connection with President Biden remains to be seen. If that is tainted and his ability to reach across the aisle and to make things happen, if that is tainted, you're taking away a couple of important legs from the table that was a strong table for Joe Biden. And then you add into that whether or not the immigration issue is going to become better or worse next year and whether the economy is going to be better or worse next year. You've got a lot of variables in play that could potentially give him the kind of negatives that Hillary Clinton had in 2016. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess one of the other things that stands out for me in this sample in terms of their demographic differences from likely voters is where they look for news from. In this sample, it was much more, they were much more internet driven with social media websites. 34% said that that's where they got their news from. That was tied with television and cable news networks. And that's and then newspapers and magazines are were only 10%, and then radio down to 4%. So, I mean, that's that seems like a, another big difference. Maybe that's a function of age of the sample, or what, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But, I mean, it shows tells me that you're in the right media doing podcasts because we're uh-huh. seeing a straight line down for, for TV. In the old days, everybody wanted to be on TV. It was like the, the a big deal. But, I mean, I have... My two boys are in their early 20s. They are not TV watchers. My son is at USC. He doesn't even have a TV in his room. He projects on the wall from his laptop. So they, you know, if you're under 35, TV is not your bag. You are watching podcasts and listening. You're getting your information from other sources. And the, the whole TV presence is dying. It's not just among unlikely voters. It's among likely voters too. Viewership is Mm -hmm. dropping right across the board. Everybody's feeling it. MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they're all dropping or trying to maintain that that critical demographic that the 25 to 54 demographic that everybody yearns for. But it's just like staying afloat. Nobody's really growing an audience because everything is rotating to social media and this is why it's so important to get good information, to listen and watch podcasts and so on, and click on some of the links that you can see and do your own research, because television is really an old person's game right now. 
Yeah, no, it definitely is. And to that point, one of the questions that you asked people in the poll here is, what do you think of when you hear the name of the current president, Joe Biden? And the first answer that people gave was old. It was about 19% said that about Biden. Now, how did that sort of thing compare to when Trump was president, when you guys did this in 2018? What did people have to say back then? Well, the 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 words offered on Trump were more vulgar, but they weren't they weren't as bad in in terms of total total responses. So it wasn't just old mm-hmm. it was cognitive skills and so on. People were a little bit more civil with Biden than they were with Trump, but the total amount of negative sentiment was pretty high against Joe. For Joe which Biden. one? For for Joe okay. Biden. Yeah. Well, I'm saying with the negative with Trump, like what was the percentage with that? It was about 10 or 15% total negative sentiment lower. So I think it was like in the high mm-hmm. 30. If you if you aggregated the negative comments, it was more like in the high 30s than the negative sentiment towards towards Biden. So and you can't do mm-hmm. anything about age. I mean, you can do something about maybe competency and a good political team can can at least create the perception that he is sharp and that he's getting better and that he's making better decisions. But it's tough. It's tough because the age situation just doesn't go away and it puts more pressure on voters and the electorate to consider the number two in line for the presidency, which is Kamala Harris. And her numbers are bad among likely voters. And I think a lot of people, more people know who she is in this poll than Mike Pence was because Mike Pence really flew under the radar. Kamala Harris has been thrust into the spotlight in a positive way by left-leaning media, but also been thrust into the spotlight by right-leaning media, trying to show that she's not competent and not a good second choice. And I think the the combination of both of those media sides, if you will, have impacted people, even who are not likely voters, to recognize who she is. That may not necessarily be a positive thing, that more people recognize who she is. It's just that they do recognize who she is, and it could be a factor among likely voters next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say that that's a real difference between the way that uh, Democrats and Republicans conduct politics, because when you look at presidential campaigns over the years, the messaging from Republicans, it tends, they offer both political and non-political reasons to uh, to go against the opponent, whereas Democrats tend to focus more on policy, generally speaking. So like, for instance, you shouldn't vote for Michael Dukakis because he looked funny in the tank, or you shouldn't vote for John Kerry because he went windsurfing and he, he was French. Whereas the on the the Democrats generally the only sort of non political thing they kind of offer is well they're stupid and they don't really focus on anything else and and the age thing actually is really interesting as an attack line against Biden because I mean I, as everybody knows Trump is basically the same age as him and so for them but so for Democrats if they were to say well look Trump's old too that doesn't help Joe Biden at all. <laughs> Because they're, you're basically saying, look, our guy's too old also. And 
So that's it's it's actually a really interesting and vu- vulnerability for Biden in that regard. It's going to be an interesting year next year because, and this is just a sort of a sidebar to to your original question, but I think it's important when you look at Diane Feinstein, Mitch McConnell, and they're all leaders in 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 Congress as well. In, in addition to to Joe Biden, and then you're going to see the graphs of the average age of the U.S. senators and and how few people are under 40 years of age and so on. So the the age incompetency is being weaved together against Joe Biden, whether it's fair or not fair, it, it's it, it and less so against Donald Trump. People acknowledge the years that 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 the, the age of Donald Trump, but it's a question of do you think he can do the job? Do you think he, whether you like the job or not, the question of do you think he can do the job is a different question. And that's what why I think it doesn't it doesn't work to Biden's advantage to go down that road. I mean, Mick Jagger is Joe Biden's age, and people don't think Mick Jagger falls short on on, on a lot of different things, singing, <laughs> dancing, or anything else at his age. And so it's not strictly about his age. It's it's about whether or not he's competent. I mean, the, the foes of Joe Biden are, are going too far, in my opinion. They're basically, all they do is just point out gaffes and his stuttered speech or he turns the wrong way or what whatever it is and that's just i mean it that's just cherry picking video to create a narrative and it's just not fair i mean it's not fair to him it's not fair to older people even though a lot of older people in the polling would prefer a younger candidate uh, just not yeah. fair. it's just not fair well, it, 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 and that's an interesting point you make there because the the Republican electorate is overwhelmingly over fifty. Like the majority of them are, I, I think it was in the last election, what was it like fifty seven percent? I believe of their electorate, maybe closer to sixty, was over the age of fifty. And so, yeah, it, it, it it's paradoxical because you're having people who perhaps might be younger than Joe Biden who are saying, well, I feel like I am not what I used to be, so he can't be either. And they really can't know that. I mean, people age in different ways. But, you know, that politics isn't fair, and it never has been, right? Yeah, so I think Democrats, they they have to exactly kind of step back from what you said about policy only, and they can't run a policy campaign against Trump and or whoever the Republican nominee is. They've got to do some really in-depth polling, focus groups, and test a number of different, not only issues, but characteristics, and try and piece together the coalitions that they need to piece together. Because right now, Joe Biden is polling, I mean, his disapproval is in the 50s, high 50s, and even higher when it comes to immigration and the economy. And just based on those numbers, for whether or not a third-party candidate runs or not, doesn't really matter. If your disapproval is at 55, I think you almost want a third-party candidate in there to split up that disapproval of 55. Because if it's a binary choice, the disapproval of 55 is going to go to whoever Biden's opponent is. And if there's a third-party candidate, 
maybe there's a buffer where they won't vote for the Republican, they can't vote for Biden for, based on how they feel, but they have a third-party alternative. I mean, we've been talking, the polling community has been talking about how a third-party candidate could hurt the Democrats, but there could be an argument to be made that a third-party candidate might might hurt the Republicans if you give people two options among the people who disapprove of Biden instead of one. Yeah, no, that's true. Although it was interesting that you guys did offer some various potential candidates to the to these people and not not Trump, not Biden, but they weren't particularly interested in any of them. I mean, Bernie Sanders was two percent, Michelle Obama, two percent, RFK, like two percent was the highest um, candidate choice. And, and overwhelmingly, the answer was so the question was, is there anyone you can think of who you would be certain to go to the polls for if that person was running? And 48% said no, no one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, what, is that, what does that say? Well, it, it says that there's a hardened group of people who aren't going to vote despite anybody. I mean, so they're telling us I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to vote. The system is rigged all throughout the poll. Then we finally say, okay, look. Is there anybody who would motivate you to go vote? And like like you said, I mean, 2% here, 2% there, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama. I think Ron DeSantis got a point, Bernie yeah, Sanders, Bernie Sanders. But, but not enough really to matter among people who aren't candidates, right? So that tells us that for nearly half of them, you could put, Maybe we should have named somebody else, or maybe they should have thought of somebody else. I don't know who that might be. Maybe Taylor Swift or somebody. <laughs> uh, I, I really don't know. But but obviously the people that would immediately come to mind didn't come to mind, and For them, yeah. you know, and 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 that that just gives you a an idea of why this kind of polling is so important, and and of how alienated people feel. Yeah. And so one of the other one of the other questions that you guys ask that I think undermines a lot of the conventional political wisdom, a lot of a lot of Democrats have this idea that people don't vote because it's too difficult for them to vote, that voter registration requirements or photo ID or whatever, that they just are too scary to people. And your poll overwhelmingly finds that that's not the case. So you ask them the question of, do you think that voting is is easy to complete and can be done quickly? And the answer, 67% said yes, and only 11% said it takes too much time. And then there was some unknown, don't know and not decided. But I mean, it's pretty overwhelming in this regard that people, they don't feel like it's too hard to participate they just choose not to not to participate and that's their choice i mean i heard i as i say i monitored some of the calls the first couple of nights and people were actually saying it's my right not to vote so what do you mm -hmm. say to that i mean hey it's my right not to vote so what are you going to say about that and 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 it wasn't about ease of registration. I mean, and by the way, that 67, that, that two thirds number has run through all three polls that we've done going back to 2012 mm -hmm. majority 
a clear majority of people know that it's not that difficult to register and they just don't want to. They want to have nothing to do with it. Some people didn't want to vote because they didn't want to be on a jury list. They didn't want their name to pop up. Some people, there were some people who were felons or who had criminal records. They didn't want to be on the, anybody's radar. I mean, there were a bunch of different reasons, but the overwhelming reasons were they just don't believe the system works anymore. They don't believe their vote counts. It has nothing to do with registering to vote. It has to do with them just giving up on the system. And some of those mm-hmm. people were Trump voters, and they've given up. Yeah, when well, that is the irony that so while Democrats believe that more voting like people are not vote, they're they're wrong to think that people aren't voting because they they don't know how to or it's too hard. The Republicans are also wrong to think that non-voters are not interested in them. I, I think your survey shows that that they at least on a certain level are willing to entertain them. And maybe it is just Trump. I mean, like that's I think that's kind of the wild card that that we don't know yet, because the previous two surveys that you did, the these non-participant people, the unlikely voters, they didn't like the other Republicans before Trump. And so that that remains to be seen. And, and, and you kind of see that with the difficulty that all these other Republicans have had gaining traction. And I keep seeing that more kind of like Republican consultants or, or commentators they have this idea in their head that Donald Trump is the weakest of our major candidates in the general election. And I think the opposite is true, that he's got a lot of people who would never vote for Ron DeSantis, who would never vote for Nikki Haley because they strike them as corporate overlord types who are repulsive, whereas they see Trump as kind of a vulgar guy that they can identify with on a certain level uh, because he's not He's not, he's not, he's not hoity-toity above it all kind of person. I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think he, I think he connects on a granular level with lower income, lower educated voters, union uh, households, those have a trade or a vocational education. You're absolutely right. He's hitting bases that a lot of these other candidates like DeSantis, Nikki Haley are not hitting. You add to that the most recent polling that shows uh, Donald Trump beating Joe Biden by nine points in the the latest ABC News, Washington Post poll. And even if it is an outlier, which they believe it is an outlier, but even if it is an outlier, the fact that he's leading or tied, he being Trump, is leading or tied with Trump with all of his legal troubles in what's supposed to be a strong economy is got to be a concern. And the polling does indicate, you're absolutely right, the polling does indicate it's Trump or bust for a lot of these Trump voters. And we've asked the question, if Trump does not get the nominate of among likely voters, if Trump doesn't get the nomination, what would you do? A considerable amount of people wouldn't vote. A considerable amount of people would vote third party. Some would even vote for Cornell West. Uh, a few would even vote for Joe Biden. They would not vote for the Republican nominee. So, I mean, in a way, Trump has the Republican Party hostage right now, because if he wins, he's going to be vulnerable in a general election on issues like abortion, which he's trying to moderate his position on and and other issues. But if he loses his a piece of his following, is just going to walk away and that will set up a, a resounding victory for Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and what happens after him? I mean, one one way or the other, if he's after twenty twenty, or sorry, in twenty twenty eight, he's not going to be running. And so, what Republicans do after that point, it's anybody's guess. But they're now at this point where they've got probably. So, I mean, it depends on how you plumb the the percentage, but you know, somewhere between like thirty five percent to fifty five percent of the Trump voters don't like Republicans. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. And that's why we've had this debate about the third party and the no labels mm-hmm. candidate. Is someone going to fly in, run as a third party candidate, whoever that might be? Mm-hmm. And what's the impact going to be in the swing states and in the 2024 election? I mean, I guess the bench really for 2028 for the Republicans is Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Scott, Yunkin maybe Governor Sununu, and that's it. It's kind of a short bench. On the Republican side, you've got the people who have run before, Elizabeth Warren. you also got Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris and some of the up-and-comers. Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. Big, yeah, yeah, of course, and, it, and and there's a big void, but there's a big void on on both sides. One of the questions, we haven't asked this question on, a, on our next, I mean, on our previous polls, I'm considering asking it in, in, in the likely polls that we're going to be doing in the future. But, you know, like, who would Republicans like to see as a VP? Would they like to see Nikki Haley or whether or not that's even feasible or DeSantis or uh, Scott? Because he has, so many, you know, he has so many detractors right now and within the ranks that, you know, and that might be an important decision that we really haven't factored in because – if he were to pick somebody from a state that is purple or even blue that could flip to to Trump, that changes the calculus a little bit. Or if he were to pick somebody like we haven't had anybody Hispanic on a ticket. If he if he were to pick a Republican who was Hispanic, what would the impact be beyond what we know now in the likely voter pool? So still a lot mm-hmm. of undecideds. Uh, I mean, still a lot of variables that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now in terms of the, I mean, like thinking about third party candidates here, obviously the American political system is heavily, I wasn't deliberately done this way to minimize the impact of third party candidates, but that is the effect of it. And some localities have experimented with some other ways of doing elections. So like in California, where I live, there is a multi-party primary election and everybody runs in the same primary. And then the top two candidates are in the general election. Uh, And then you got other states where they have multi-party voting. So you can vote for more than one candidate if you want to. And then they have a runoff after that. And I mean, like, it seems like that that's people want alternative electoral systems. But it is interesting that when you you mentioned no labels, and then you've got Andrew Yang, who's got his forward party. And what's interesting with all these non-Republican, non-Democratic advocates, they're not focusing on alternative election systems. And the reality is you can't get anywhere as a third party unless the electoral system has changed. You're running a hopeless effort that maybe you might get a particularly fantastic candidate or a rich candidate like a Ross Perot or something. 
But that's a flash in the pan. Like people, he only knew who he was because he had a billion dollars and was throwing it all, flushing it down the toilet on these TV specials that he was spending all this money on. Like that's how people knew who he was. But you guys did find there's a strong appetite for third party candidates. I actually remember the Perot election back, mm-hmm. believe it or not, in, in, in 92. And he won two of the three televised debates in post-debate polling. So mm-hmm. he, he had the money, but he also he simplified the country's problems in a way that mainstream Americans needed the issues to be articulated as. And so you you talk about alternative methods of voting. Look at ranked choice voting. I mean, if there was mm-hmm. a third-party candidate that ran in 2024, what do you think would happen with ranked choice voting? You've got Trump voters who would never vote for Biden, Biden voters who would never vote for Trump, but they probably would vote for a third-party candidate. And if you had ranked choice voting, a third-party candidate would do quite well in a national election. And that's because it's the lesser of the two evils. You're no longer in that position, yeah. That's right. I mean, and, and, and the evils are so polarized that someone from the middle would have a better chance than than either left or right. And if even if the no, I mean, in, in the column I wrote, I was talking about the comparable election in a, a poll. This poll in 2018 showed that only nine percent were voting third party, and now it's three times that. And the nine percent, I think, translated to like a few percent of people in the 2000 in the in the the 2012 election. And now in 2024, it's three times that. So is that going to be eight or 9% of people voting third party? If that's the case, it's going to really, really shift things in some of the, the states that matter, like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Nevada. So, I mean, you've got a lot to think about. I mean, Look at Nevada's ballot. You're from you're from being from California. You're familiar with Nevada's ballot. Nevada has a ballot option. None of these candidates. That's an actual ballot option. You can go to the polls and vote none of these candidates. I think there were like five candidates or four or five candidates for president on the ballot in 2020. And still people were saying, imagine that you go to the polls or you vote by absentee in Nevada, and there are five, four or five candidates for president. And you don't select any of them. You voted, but you voted none of these candidates. And these are people who are likely voters. Forget unlikely. These are people who actually went to the polls in Nevada in 2020 and selected none of these candidates. It's crazy. But that's the the kind of thinking that's out there. And I guess we have to acknowledge that a lot of these unlikely voters, they don't know as much about politics. And maybe that's why they might not like candidates. That's possible, right? And what it suggests, though, is that I think there's another possibility is that the major parties, they're not adequately explaining themselves or carrying the message to people who might actually like what they have to say, but they just think it's too difficult to understand them when they talk. I mean, you constantly hear Democrats say that uh, Biden did all these things and nobody knows that he did them, like about student loan forgiveness or spending on infrastructure projects. And they're correct to point that out, that people don't know that stuff. But 
ultimately the blame for that lies on them. <laughs> not any, not no one else is responsible for that. If you don't carry Absolutely. your own message, who's going to do it for you? Absolutely. I mean, there is a messaging problem. There is a messaging problem. And part of it is, and Republicans do the same thing. There's a lot of infighting. There was a lot of infighting in the Republican Party. There still is. You'll see it at the, at the next Republican debate out in California. And there's infighting in the Democrat. We should be doing this. No, we should be doing that. We have to do, we have to do more of this. And so when you're spinning your wheels like that, time goes by and the message never gets out. It's not it's not uh, a reinforced message. But even with all of the good news, and there is a lot of good news in the government statistics that are being released, unemployment numbers. But even with all of that, I mean, the poll we released last week, which was a kitchen table poll on the economy, we found that it, we, we gave people seven categories that people spend money on. Seven out of seven categories, people who are making under $50,000 are cutting back on basic stuff, food, groceries, clothing, their electricity. They're cutting back on seven out of seven. Now, people who make under $50,000, there's a good chunk of them that are Democratic voters. They're either students who are just starting out first job. They're not making $50,000 right out of their college, whether it's a good college, community college, or whatever, or older mm -hmm. people who are on fixed incomes. They're getting Social Security, whatever. They may be taking in 30 grand or 40 grand. They may not have any debt, but that's all their income is, 30, 40,000. And they can't put food on their table. So you could put out all the positive messaging you want policy-wise, and that's great. But if people are stressed out at the end of the week because their credit card bills are through the roof or they can't pay their bills, how are people supposed to feel? Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. And uh, I think Democrats, they missed the boat on gas prices and uh, inflation with that. Um, and they didn't pay attention to it as early as they could have. And then Republicans, I, again, like Trump is, he is very different from a regular Republican in that he is so much better at touting his own accomplishments, or at least claiming some, right? And so he's able to get a lot more people aware of him. And again, these are people that are, that would have probably been predisposed to him in any way. So, but he really understands communications a lot better than any other politician in the game right now, I feel like. Yeah, he does. And the good news for Democrats is they have time. They acknowledge they have a messaging problem. They acknowledge there's a vacuum there. And this is in October of 2024. It's a year a year away plus, and they have time to figure that out. If Trump is the nominee, they're going to make the election about democracy. Here's a guy that tried to overthrow the country, the country, and change an election, and they're going to do due diligence to try and make that happen. If Trump has any legal victories between now and then, even if it's not just court delays, but any legal victories, he's going to tout that as, you see, I was innocent. They were coming after me and and all of that. So it's going to be a fabulous story month to month to see which of the forces prevail. On the one hand, if the economy rebounds and immigration, the immigration problem begins to have a delta that's going in the right direction, it's going to be hard to vote Biden out of office. If the economy continues to be on a tailspin and our poll our kitchen table poll shows that people are really stressed out and spending less, which is going to impact corporate earnings, which is going to impact layoffs. 
interest rates are high, capital is going to be tough. If that spiral continues into next year, it's going to be tough for people to vote for Joe Biden, especially if the border issues aren't going in the right direction. So all of the cultural issues that you hear about and teaching parental rights in schools and guns and opioids are all important issues, climate change, abortion rights. But if people can't survive from week to week in terms of their own kitchen tables, it's going to be a really difficult election. Yeah, the the other stuff doesn't matter nearly so much. Yeah, so let's maybe wrap on one topic that was not in the poll here and hasn't been in the previous ones is religion. We did not ask people's religious opinions on that. And I think that that's, and I'll say as somebody who used to do polling when I was at the Hill, I've always tried to make religious questions more of an issue because I think that people have wrongly used education as a proxy for worldview and religion probably gets closer to that in terms of how often they're attending or what their beliefs are about religious fundamentalist viewpoints. So like asking them, do you believe in evolution? Humans evolved, or do you believe the earth is 7,000 years old? Like those I believe are probably the biggest predictors of what your vote's going to be on how you answer those questions. And so just want to put that in your put that in your in your ear if I could at this juncture here. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, we did we did ask questions about religion in earlier election cycles. We haven't, and I don't think it's just Suffolk. I, I think a lot of pollsters yeah. have kind of put the, the, those questions aside. I'd be happy to sort of revive that. You have put it in my head, and because I think it's something that hasn't been done a lot. Part of the reason is because people just, it's like everything else, especially people who are not likely voters. They're certainly not devout anything, especially those people who are at the end, their end of their life or, or disabled. Or I mean, I, I believe that a lot of people of organized religion is another one of those institutions that is really failing. And maybe it takes times like these and times of crisis to bring people back into that. All right. Well, so we've been talking today with David Paleologos. Your uh, name literally means old word. That's uh, right. <laughs> Ancient word. Ancient word. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks for being here, David. It's been a great Absolutely. discussion. And so that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us for the conversation. And of course, you can get more of this show at theoryofchange.show. You can get access to the video, audio, and transcripts of all the episodes. And we have both free and paid subscriptions to the show. If you have a paid subscription, you get access to a little bit more content. And I definitely appreciate your help with that. And if you are not able to support the show financially, I do definitely appreciate you leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you are using to listen to the show. And uh, if you're on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe to the show so you can get it sent to you whenever we come up with a new one. Thank you very much for that. And I will see you next time.